Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today, before the show, just wanted to quickly remind you guys to go check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus, where you can become one of our patrons by uh, contributing small monthly donations to our podcast to help us keep it up and running. And for that, you get cool rewards, so go over there, check it out. Also want to use this time to thank our sponsors over at AWH. If you guys want to know about them, they're builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile. They drive business for select growth companies, and they've got over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications. They're focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. And if you guys want to find out more about them, check out awh.net and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, let's get this episode rolling. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey guys, our guest today is Mr. John Rush, and a little bit of background on John. He's currently running for the House of Representatives as a Republican in District 17 here in Ohio. He's also a social entrepreneur with a distinct focus on changing the paradigm of how we think about the relationship between business and the social sector. After serving as a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps, John focused his career on creating small businesses, focused on creating employment for men and women formerly impacted by homelessness, incarceration, human trafficking, domestic violence, and other challenges. Over the last decade, John has served on several nonprofit boards and assisted with the creation and or growth of nearly 30 social enterprises in Chicago, Cleveland, and right here in Columbus. In 2011, a handful of interested investors recruited John to help launch CleanTurn. CleanTurn launched in January of 2012 and has since that time become one of Central Ohio's leading social enterprises. CleanTurn has provided over 300 training and employment opportunities and created a social and economic return of over $20 million in Central Ohio. John currently serves on the board of the Columbus Area Integrated Health Services, Catholic Social Services, Franklinton Rising, and was recently appointed to the advisory board for the Office of Enterprise Development for the State of Ohio's Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. John is a former candidate for the Columbus City Council and actively engaged in public policy issues related to small businesses and social services. John holds five master's degrees focused on urban studies, religion, history, nonprofit management, and an MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. John's also married, he's got eight kids, and he's currently residing on the southwest side of Columbus. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, John. Awesome, thank you. Thanks for having me. How's your day going so far? Awesome. Yeah, I had some door knocking earlier today, mm-hmm. and uh, another another uh, exciting day at Clean Turn Enterprises. And so I should clarify, I was in the Marine Marines, but I did not retire from the Marines. <laughs> so big difference. Yeah, but I did. I, uh, Your dad I retired, was thinking right? about that. You got to be in, was it 20 years before you can actually retire? Retire, right. Yeah. Right. I served four. 
Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so you were a sergeant in the Marines, right? So you were boots on the ground, right? Boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How was that? Did you enjoy your time? I did. Yeah, I learned a lot. You know, it was uh, early on in in high school. I had I had some challenges with authority and uh, respecting authority. And uh, the Marine Corps had a way of uh, redirecting my energy. Yeah, they'll fix uh, that. <laughs> so I remember as clear as day, I was out in the chow hall, and uh, drill instructor Sergeant McKenzie, 6'8", uh, African-American fellow, just stepped right in front of me and got his milk. And I said, sir, one of these days you're going to salute this recruit, sir. That's what I said to my drill instructor. Oh. Yeah, he took issue with that. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's wild. I won't tell you everything that he said. To right? Me. Yeah, no, I don't know if we can repeat what he <laughs> yeah, said on this it. podcast. We yeah. have, we're a clean podcast. <laughs> beep beep. Yeah, beep, exactly. beep. there would be a lot of beeps going off. But uh. yeah, so <clears throat> kind of that's a good place to start. We talked a little bit about the Marines, and here you have more degrees than I've read books in my life. So maybe we could talk about a couple of them and uh, how did those progress, and maybe your earlier days, and then up till. Um, obviously you can't crunch, you know, 20 years of life into 10 minutes, but give us a brief overview, maybe the 10,000 feet. Yeah. You know, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I thought I wanted to be engaged in uh, faith-based work in Chicago and I volunteered at a homeless shelter and just fell in love with the men that I was working with on the West side of Chicago. I knew Appalachian poverty. I grew up in a trailer park in West Virginia and, uh, we did not have a lot, but I did not know what K-Town Chicago poverty was. And so I spent a lot of time in the alleys. I had played basketball in high school, so that was actually a good tool that I had in terms of relationship building on the west side in Chicago. And I was in school um, studying theology and ancient languages, again, because I thought I wanted to you know, get involved in more pastoral clergy-type work. Uh, and just as I worked with the guys and realized that many of them simply needed an opportunity to work and provide for themselves and companies were not giving them a second chance, I thought, well, what if, what if I spent some time and energy focused on building small businesses that could decide who they wanted to hire and not hire? And so that's, that's kind of where the social entrepreneurship took root. Um, I still had continued interest in my academic studies, and so I continued uh, studying in urban studies and history and philosophy and I uh, uh, had a f- kind of a foot in the academy and then a foot in everyday practical life. Um, and that helped form some of the questions that I that I was looking to ask and answer. So uh, and then went to Northwestern for my MBA. And uh, while I was doing my MBA, had an opportunity to do an MA in nonprofit management at North Park. And it was really cool because the folks at North Park that I interacted with were primarily in the nonprofit space doing social service type work. And the folks that I interacted with the most at Northwestern at the Kellogg School of Business were primarily corporate types who were in the business world who didn't necessarily have a strong connection to the everyday social you know, worker experience. So I was, my network was both. My work was both through Clean Slate. And I really enjoyed trying to figure out how to integrate business and social mission, even at the academic level, while I was practicing it by building small companies in Chicago. So... So yeah, that's and then that's that's pretty much where the last twenty years has has been spent. You know, employing about twenty five hundred folks over the course of that time who've come out of some pretty challenging backgrounds. So, absolutely. And and you mentioned Clean Slate there for a minute. And that was one thing I wanted to talk about was Clean Slate and what they do. So, by uh, remember correctly, Clean Slate's an organization that um, gives people jobs to help in neighborhood beautification around uh, certain areas in Chicago. Correct. That's right. Yeah, they had a neighborhood beautification business line. Um, 
and it's primarily transitional job focused. And so it's a business that's owned by a nonprofit organization called the CARA program, C-A-R-A. And uh, it helped diversify the funding stream of CARA while providing for folks who had higher obstacles to employment in the CARA program. Uh, it provided them opportunities for transitional work. And we had, at the time when I was there, about 70 companies that we were partnered with who would hire from our transitional job pool. And uh, was very fortunate to have a very good friend, Brady Gott, who's the current managing director at Clean Slate, uh, slide over when I transitioned out to, to launch a, a separate company uh, called 180 Properties that was a partnership between the CARA program and Mercy Housing. Um, but um, and Brady's been able to keep, keep things moving forward there in, in Chicago with Clean Slate. And then some philanthropic investors said, hey, look, we've seen the work in Chicago. Can, can you help us do something here in Columbus? And I said, well... Let's go for it. So we put together a small fund of 300000 in uh, 2011 and uh, launched here in Columbus. And since that time, we've been able to create three, three business lines. One is Clean Turn Demolition Services. The other is She Has a Name Cleaning Services and uh, Passion Purpose Profit. And so we've employed a little over 400 folks here in the Columbus area over the last uh, four and a half years close to five years now, and roughly 35-40% have used us as a stepping stone to move on to other opportunities in the marketplace. We have about 45 nonprofit partners, uh, including the Department of Corrections. And so, and then for our She Has a Name business, uh, a strong partner is the Catch Court program uh, here in Franklin County. And so, so it's been great. And, and the difference in our model here is we're not owned by a nonprofit. Um, we're a for-profit LLC, and we take all the profit that we generate and leverage that to support our program services that we're able to provide to our staff. And that's a really unique concept that Mike and I talked with Alan Proctor about when we had him on and we spoke about him a little bit before the interview started. You said you were on his board and helped him uh, kind of get things going. So that's an interesting um, kind of business model that we really took to in our last interview. But I want to step back to when you talked about you raised $300,000 for that fund. I'm always curious when you say that, where does that money come from for those out there that might be interested in creating an organization similar? Yeah, to it's it's interesting because it's usually not easy to find that type of money. Um, it helped to have the experience of Clean Slate and 180 Properties and a couple of other ventures in Chicago to be able to say to folks who had some disposable income, hey, look, how about taking some of your disposable you know, income and investing it in this idea? Uh, that r really had n no materiality to it at all. But there was the experience of having seen something done before that they bought into. And so the individuals who invested, again, it was disposable income. And so the way I pitched it and the way I would encourage any uh, aspiring social entrepreneur to pitch it if they're looking to structure it the way we've structured it, and that's as a traditional LLC, but being very intentional in their operating agreement about the mission orientation because obviously the investors are part of the ownership and they're included in that operating agreement. So you want to make sure it's very explicit that that's the case. But what do you have to lose, right? And so if, if it's disposable income that you're going to give away to a philanthropic cause, it's a tax write-off and you're hoping and looking for that tax write-off. If you can take a portion of your disposable income, invest it in a for-profit, as long as you're not incurring an additional tax liability because we'll, we'll cover the taxable income on your disbursement so you don't have a tax liability, there's really nothing to lose because your, your gift becomes a gift that gives in perpetuity. Your gift actually becomes a gift that just keeps making more gifts. 
if it fails and it doesn't work, well, you get a business write-off. It's not the same type of tax write-off, but it's still something you can write off on your taxes. And so the, the risk is really not that, that significant, and, and the upside is tremendous. And even if it fails, you still have, for the duration that the entity existed, the positive impact in people's lives that you, that you can't negate, right? And so there are still folks who were able to use you as a stepping stone to move on to other opportunities in the marketplace to be able to provide for themselves and their families, and they're still doing well, whether you continue to exist or not, at least in our model. So, But a lot of it has to depend on, it depends on your mission, depends on uh, the targeted population, if it's a workforce development-oriented social enterprise, uh, is it environmental? Is it product? Is it service-based? I mean, there's a number of questions that go into the type of model that you would create, including the legal structure. Is it an LLC? Is it an L3C? Is it a 501c3? Is it a B core? Is it a C core? I mean, and it doesn't, at the end of the day, really matter, in my opinion, a whole lot what the legal structure is. Uh, what does matter is understanding your business model and then identifying the right business legal structure that fits that model. So. Absolutely. You know, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned making sure that your operating agreement is very clear about uh, your mission statement and what, what you want to do, because I think that's one place that aspiring entrepreneurs and people kind of um, miss out is like the, the little key details like that, like making sure your operating agreement is very certain on what you're going for. So um, I guess my, my question in all of that is um, when people were investing, did you ever have any sort of people like kind of push back on the operating agreement and say, hey, this mission maybe isn't the right way to go? Like, how, how did your mission take shape? Yeah, we didn't. Thankfully, everybody that invested mm-hmm. had an interest in creating something that was self-sustaining and something that provided employment for folks coming out of generational poverty, incarceration, et cetera. So that was, in our case, was extremely easy. What I had to wrestle through as an entrepreneur looking to start a new venture was ownership structure and ownership percentage, right? And so if you have an idea and you have a business plan and you know you can execute on it, but you don't have the capital that you need to get up and running, there's a couple of approaches to take. One is you can take the, I'm going to do this out of the back of my garage mentality while I serve tables to meet my basic needs. Um, In my case, that would have been not just my basic needs, but my wife and eight kids' basic needs. (laughs) So it's a little bit more complicated as you start to, bring more people into the world. But, um, was that eight? You said yeah, eight? Yeah. Uh, six boys and two girls. That it's, is it's remarkable. Quite, quite <laughs> Almost got a whole baseball yeah, team. Yeah. What yeah. more you got the team? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be playing Cleveland tonight. <laughs> I often joke. That was another venture I started. It was a baby manufacturing plant. Yeah. So, uh, it's quite effective. Um, very non-profitable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's extremely, at least for right now, but the odds are at least one of them will do really well. So I'll have, you know, right. Exactly. Retirement. Someday <laughs> they'll make some money. It's like venture capital with babies. Right. So when you want to hit a 10 X return right. and then you're good. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> um, and if you have them young enough, you might be able to count on some grandkids or even great grandkids, right? So nice. you kind of multiplier effect there. But uh, hopefully they won't listen to this. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> They'll get a kick. They've heard it, yeah, a little bit before. That's but yeah, so I think you know it's a good question because you know for you know in the operating agreement that you know um, uh, for our folks that were interested in the type of mission that we had, it wasn't it wasn't a difficult pitch, but the ownership structure was. And so if you have a great idea where I was going with that was, look, 
Um, I can I can grow it on my own and debt finance it. I can't find any capital investment, so I'm just going to debt finance it. I'm going to work my hiney off at serving tables somewhere. Whatever I need to do to meet my meet my basic needs, I'm not going to take any money from this entity. And in three years, it'll be to the point where I can draw a salary, and then eventually, you know, and then five years, I'll be able to do this. Like that's a it's a patient model, and, and you got to be patient. You got to be patient in any model, but uh, and. Uh, but you're bearing all the risk, but you have a hundred in that situation. You have a hundred percent ownership, you know, unless you're doing it with somebody else. And then you're like, you guys, the two of you are like 50, 50, which has its own intrinsic potential challenges down the road when it becomes really successful because it's dual authority, dual power, dual decision-making. When you have eight investors like we had and your investment, uh, your ownership was, uh, really the parameters of your ownership, your percentage of ownership was, dependent on the amount of dollars that you invested in terms of the number of units you got. For for myself, I had to make a decision if I brought in seven other investors and gave up majority ownership, would I be comfortable with that? Um, and for me, I was. I was like, you know what? I want to have larger impact sooner rather than wait until later to see that happen. And so for me, it wasn't an issue to give up ownership uh, and even control, frankly, and allow that to be in, embedded into the operating agreement early on. And so um, now I, I made sure that the operating agreement had me listed as the key man so that I was the decision maker and I didn't have a seven others you know, micromanaging the decision making. So that was important for me. It, it, it didn't mean that I didn't want advice or counsel or that I knew it all. I mean, you got to be careful there too to not think you, you know, because you get blinders real easy. But but I, did, I really didn't want somebody in the day-to-day -day other than myself and our management team that was making the decisions because we were the ones doing the work every day. Um, and so I wanted to maintain that authority, and I wanted to have the flexibility to scale and grow at a rate that we wanted to scale and grow and not be held back. And so, and I certainly didn't want to be, at least in this model, owned by a nonprofit because I had already had that experience. And it was a good experience. I learned a lot, but I wanted to try something that was a little bit more unique than that. So... Uh, yeah. So some people have problems starting one business on their own, and you've managed basically create three under this umbrella. Can you talk about kind of the process of making each one and how they kind of each a high-level overview of how they evolved? Yeah, you know, it's crazy because it's probably not the way to do it. So anybody <laughs> listening, just do, you know, it's not the way to do it. Uh, it's very opportunistic. I mean, um uh, we launched with six business lines when we started. Uh, two of those we chucked at the end of the first year. One was what we called turn paint paint. Basically, we were turning units for property management companies, and the margins were significantly uh, less than what we had on our other business lines. Um, the gross margin was like 4%. The net margin was like negative 8%. And we were, looked at that, and we thought, you know, if we invest in getting stronger management, because it is a higher skill set oriented type business model, and for a lot of the folks that we're hiring who are coming out of challenging backgrounds, there's a learning curve that exists for most of our staff. And so if you have a model that in requires a higher skill set, the learning curve is even larger. So that was part of the challenge. Um, we were really significantly undercapitalized to take on uh, term paint mate because there's heavy cash flow obligations because you're paying for the cabinets, the carpet, et cetera, on the front end, and then your, you know, your accounts receivable sit there for 60 or 90 days before you see, see the money. And so you can't, you know, so depending on how, how many projects you have, right, you're, you can get cash flow restrained real, real quick. 
So we chucked that one, and uh, we chucked property preservation services, which was primarily taking care of vacant foreclosed homes uh, for property management companies and for um, uh, financial institutions. And so for some of the same reasons. And we focused uh, more on the positive side. We looked and said, hey, look, we're really doing well in these other four business lines. You know, another good reason to chuck these two is because focus always helps. <laughs> now, for somebody like myself that has a very difficult time focusing, uh, it's, it's hard because I get bored really easy. But you have to, at some point, you have to make a decision. You're going to focus really hard and just deal with the fact that it's just, just a short term. You know, it's like, it's like being sick. Yeah, I know I'm going to have stomach flu. It's going to be three days, and I'll be fine. So just deal with it, whatever. You know, like you just got to take that. I'm going to be through this in a minute. Part of that training came from the Marine Corps. When we take those 20-mile hikes, and you have 100 pounds on your back. Like, you know it's going to end eventually. So you just keep plowing through, and then it's over, and you're like, great. Same thing when if you get bored really easy, and you're an entrepreneur, and you want to start stuff all the time. So we focused on those four, um, and really um, two of those have, have kind of blossomed into their own brands. One was the She Has a Name Cleaning Services. So we had a janitorial business line. When it became uh, large enough to become self-sufficient and w large enough for us to be able to bring on a managing director who could take ownership of that particular business line and for all intents and purposes function like the president of that entity, uh, that's when we launched it as its own separate brand uh, and had its own specific mission. We were already working with survivors of human trafficking, but we wanted to be more intentional with that business line about spreading awareness around the issues of human trafficking uh, and partnering with organizations that were working in that space. And so we wanted to use that brand to address that specific mission. Um, Clean Turn Demolition uh, Services that does bulk removal services. Again, we were already doing that work and we were already working with a population of folks that were coming out of incarceration, uh, but we wanted to be more intentional about creating a distinct brand. When it was self-sufficient, we had our own managing director, et cetera, we were able to launch that out as a separate brand. The other part was now we have at least these two entities that we can standardize the operations uh, so that we can replicate those models more easily in other major urban areas, which is the next step. 2018, we you know, have plans to expand into other major uh, urban settings like Cincinnati will probably be our first launch. Mm -hmm. And so the lawn services company is still in the incubation. We still do it. It's still being incubated. And then the general labor business, which is primarily a pathway to the trades and to other opportunities in the marketplaces, in the marketplace, is kind of like a quasi-labor-ready type company. Uh, but the difference is the intentionality with the program services on the front end and then identifying the right apprenticeship or training opportunities on the back end. And so folks that, for example, want to enter into the electrical trades, they may work with us for six to nine months in uh, a quasi-apprenticeship where they're working around electricians with electricians in an electrical company, and then they slide off of our payroll and they enter into a four-year certified apprenticeship program with that electrical company. And after that, they're certified electricians and they're off to the races. We've folded in that general labor business line, this is the most recent uh, development, into our Passion, Purpose, Profit brand because the mission of Passion, Purpose, Profit is to take the DNA of what we do at Clean Turn Enterprises, knowing that we can't meet the need of 50,000 folks who are incarcerated every year in our state or the even m m more thousands of people that are coming out of generational poverty or substance abuse alone in terms of providing employment and supportive employment at that. But if we can take what we do and inject the DNA of what we do into the broader business community, uh, 
by partnerships in providing qualified labor and staffing for those organizations while coaching them on how to receive such individuals and do so in a, in a good and healthy way has been awesome. And so we recently hired a Passion Purpose Profit director, and, um, and uh, the idea is to see folks, again, pursue opportunities in the marketplace in that capacity. And then on the flip side, folks who have come to us and said, hey, look, I want to start my own business. Well, great. There's current businesses that we want to inject the DNA to, and, and then there's new companies that we want to help incubate and launch. And so we've recently partnered up with the Ohio Finance Fund on a microfinance uh, uh, program where we will be uh, providing entrepreneurship training and business development, business planning development uh, for folks that are coming out of challenging backgrounds with the goal of seeing at least 8 to 10 such individuals receive uh, an investment of capital on the back end in the form of a micro loan to get their business up and running. And those that do well, our intention is to be able to come alongside them and perhaps invest capital from an equity standpoint uh, to help them even become more successful. And so then they would also be a brand under the Clean Turn Enterprises you know, brand. And so, so that's a pretty cool new development that we have with the Passion Purpose Profit business. So. Yeah. And, yeah. Start five more companies, have 10 more kids, and you'll be good to go and call it a life. Yeah. <laughs> done pretty well so yeah. far. Hey, I plan on dying with my boots on. You know, so, yeah, life is too short. You get, yeah, so. Absolutely. So, or at least my shoes on. I guess my next question from this is, what made you want to run for office? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I've, I get that question quite often. You know, there is a lot of interaction because of the work that I'm involved in with folks that are coming out of some pretty significant, challenging backgrounds. Uh there's, a, there's an intersection already that exists with the public space, w- with folks who are in elected office, right? And so there's a lot of public policy issues that you wrestle through, even as a small business owner, separate from any social mission orientation. You know, you have things that you're constantly wrestling through, whether it's workman's comp, or it's unemployment, or it's hourly rates, or it's, uh, you know, overtime, there's a lot of legislation that impacts the small business community, and depending on the industry, some industries can absorb some of those policy changes more easily than other industries. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day that's in the grocery industry, and they average one percent net margin. I mean, you have to get a lot of volume to make any money to make it to make it work. Uh, and uh, so, if you're in that space, you know, legislation that impacts how much you're going to be paying your employees. Uh, is a lot m- more relevant to you than if you're a chiropractor or uh, or a insurance industry where your net margins on average are a little bit thicker. Uh, you might be able to absorb, not that you would want it, but you might be able to absorb it a little bit easier mm-hmm. than a lower margin industry, right? And so I'm not saying they'd want it. Again, uh, anybody in business typically wants lower, lower taxes and pay people less. So, I mean, traditionally, it's just the way it is. But... As a social entrepreneur, you know, it's it's kind of like you know the the van in the box, and I'm like I you know theoretically and principally I love it. the The challenge for us is we're intentional about hiring folks who have challenging backgrounds. So the purpose of the box for us was, <laughs> right? We want to know because we'd prefer. I mean, even though we can't because we're giving preferential treatment to somebody. We'd prefer folks who have a challenging background, which mm-hmm. is kind of weird. It's like uh, you know the unintended consequence of legislation prevents us from being able to be as explicit in terms of providing favor to those who've had a challenging background in terms of our hiring policies. 
right? So we have to walk a very fine line there to make sure we're not giving preferential treatment to survivors of human trafficking, to victims of domestic violence, to people coming out of incarceration, to people coming out of generational poverty. And so, um, so wrestling through those public policy realities, wrestling through the fact that we spend roughly $30,000 per year to lock up 50,000 people just in our state alone, it's a billion and a half roughly dollars. You know, that's a lot of money that we're deciding how it should be spent. And so I thought, you know what, I have had some experience. I know some questions. I know fewer answers than I do questions. Uh, but the little bit that I do know, I'd love to be able to have an opportunity as an elected um, official to be able to speak into some of these decisions that are being being made. And so, um, and so that's why. I mean, sentencing reform, uh, d- addressing issues of the heroin epidemic. Um, in our specific district where I live, uh, there's an economic development need, especially in the Westland Mall area, the Cooper Stadium, and the old Columbus Casting site. And so I'd love to see economic development take place, and I'd love to see it take place in such a way that it would foster and cultivate in Central Ohio a Silicon Valley of social entrepreneurship where we become, it's part of our DNA, it's part of our brand in Central Ohio that we're known across the country as the place where entrepreneurship that's oriented towards accomplishing positive social outcomes we're kind of like the place to go, you know. And so, and if I can help influence that through the state legislature, then how awesome would that be, you know? Mm-hmm. At least that's my absolutely dream. So, so following from that, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that want to become entrepreneurs because they want to become independently wealthy and they want to accumulate a lot of wealth in their life. Would you encourage somebody who wants to live that kind of lifestyle to create a social enterprise? Um, can you become independently wealthy with that business model? can and and you cannot too (laughs) so it and again it goes back to your business model it goes back to the mission that you're choosing to accomplish it depends on the market that you're servicing right and so if it's tech oriented and the margins are a little bit thicker and the market's willing to pay a little bit more and you're able to keep your fixed cost lower as a result and able to accomplish a social mission that's pretty much out of this world and amazing then you're going to be able to accumulate more wealth in that business model while accomplishing a particular social good. Then if you choose to operate in a space where you're working with folks who have a significant uh, uh, criminal history, who have very uh, low skills, who need a lot of training, who have had lack of access to quality education, who didn't grow up in a uh, two-parent home but grew up with the, the you know neighborhood gang leader being dad, and um, have been habituated to act and behave in certain ways for all of their life that's been exasperated by 20 years in prison without any additional training, and your business model is providing uh, a service to the marketplace where uh, the market's driving down prices to, uh, to the lowest point possible. We want bulk removal services. We want cleaning services, but we don't want to pay a whole lot. How low can you go? And, and they're singing the song, how low can you go? And, and so and you're, <laughs> you're trying to figure it out. And so while you're working with the population, as I just described, uh, <clears throat> you, you, you can do well. You can meet your basic needs if you're frugal and you um, – and eventually, if you get enough volume, theoretically, you could even do better. It's a volume game at that point uh, in terms of wealth accumulation, right? And so, but it's a, it's a different business model. It's a different mission orientation, et cetera, et cetera, th- those two examples, right? And so, um, and, and there's no 
wrong or right. And that's the other thing is sometimes I think we pigeonhole ourselves and think there's a wrong or right way on some of the stuff. And it really isn't, you know, I know great folks who've been very intentional about making as much money as they possibly can while volunteering from time to time in some charitable activity. And with the idea that at some point in the future, they'll be able to take some of the wealth that they've accumulated it, accumulated and, and invest it as gifts in the, in, in the general public. You know, you shouldn't feel bad about living such a life. And other folks who um, who've chosen to, to live a different different lifestyle, uh, and uh, and so it, it's there's no right or wrong. I, I do think it's it's sometimes material things and wealth can be a distraction, uh, and the pursuit of material things can become a distraction. Uh, and, bec- and can become very uh, absorbing. And so it can suck the life out of an individual pretty quickly because you really never feel as if you, at least you can, at least this is the danger, you never really feel like you have enough, right? And so so there's a lot of intrinsic dangers that come with material possessions. That At the end of the day, I mean, whatever your view of the end of the world is or your end of your own life is, whether there's something to come or something not to come, Either way, you're not taking anything with you. You're going to be six feet under. You're going to be in a box or a bottle or something. Like, so, you know, and nothing's going with you. Like, I mean, so, uh, you know, so what type of, type of legacy do you want to leave for your family, for the people you know, you, for your friends? What kind of difference do you make in the world? If your worldview is different and you, you think that at some point in time, once you pass away, uh, what you do in this world matters for the life to come, then there's maybe a little bit more relevance to how you th- think about this life. But in either case, I mean, like, you're not taking it with you. So, I mean, why not live with the joy of, of impacting other people's lives in a positive way? Now, theoretically, you might argue, too, that, you know, you could be a complete hedonist and not worry about anybody else, but having as much fun as you can until you kick the bucket because that's all there is. So, I mean, I guess that could be an argument but uh well, we could have left on a bright note so, <laughs> <laughs> i like to think of uh i like to think of of uh there, there's a possibility of being the hedonist in, in, a, in a good way just like i think you can make money and, and do good at the same time right and so i'm all about being a um a hedonist as uh um but a hedonist and absorbing myself into the life of others so as to be able to join them in their journey as we learn from each other what it means to live a fulfilled life, right? And so, and if the goal of a hedonist is to maximize pleasure, I find far more pleasure in that than I do in the, in the accumulation of material things. Um, and so, so for me, that's a good, that's a good, hed- that's a good hedonism. <laughs> you just won my vote with that. So. That's all I, I mean. That was good. It was deep. Absolutely. It's good. So, you know, I think we're getting kind of towards the end here. I know you got an event to get going to here for your campaign, right? Yeah, karaoke but, uh, with Rush. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> karaoke with Rush. Yeah, yeah. How come we can't record that one? Yeah, at Dirty Pranks. <laughs> yeah. But um, I joke. I tell people if I if I sing, I'll probably lose votes. But if I dance, right. I might get some votes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So uh, one of the questions we always kind of end off with is um, on our podcast, our motto uh, and our kind of our slogan that we've adopted is live uncomfortably. Because we feel that in order to be successful, an individual needs to put themselves in uncomfortable positions and constantly kind of push themselves outside that comfort zone. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, have you lived uncomfortably? Yeah, yeah I, think it's, I think it's spot on. I was just, I think I, maybe even just yesterday, I had posted 
I had seen some friends who ha- had uh, celebrated a moment that took place at city council this week, highlighting um, how city council had passed some legislation or passed, um, um, not legislation, but had passed a memorandum to the community about um, dis- um, discouraging uh, uh, despairing Muslims and treating Muslims uh, in, in a uh, bad way and so on and so forth. So my Muslim friends were celebrating. And <clears throat> I remember about a decade ago or so, I was doing some research on the intersection of faith and culture, and I reached out you know, to a, um, who, somebody who became a friend, Ahmed Rahab, at the Council on American Islamic Relations in Chicago. Now, I, I was familiar with the Islamic tradition because I had read books, and I had listened to tapes, and I had listened at the time tapes, cassette tapes, um, and I had listened to folks talk about the Islamic tradition. I read about it, et cetera. But I didn't know anybody. I really didn't know anybody. Same thing when I moved from, you know, from the Marine Corps to K-Town. I literally, I, I would walk in the middle. I'd sleep in the alleys. Like, I wanted to know what was life like in K-Town. Now, I'm always bringing my prior experience with me, so it's never going to be the same existentially. You can't have the exact same experience. But to assimilate oneself into the life of another as much as you can while remaining... Uh, a good listener is a constant work in progress for me at least and so it's the same thing with wanting to understand I mean I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll ever become a Muslim I think it's enriched my own faith tradition as a Christian I feel as if the beauty of Christ is all the more greater for me as I understand the faith of Ahmed Rahab and how he's integrating his faith into his everyday life I don't feel threatened by his faith at all right and he understands that there are folks who've abused his tradition, just like in the Christian tradition, people have abused our tradition uh, for, for, for wrong ends. And so, but you, it, uh, you have to step out of your, I think it's a health, I think it's a cool thing to step out of your comfort zone and, and intentionally pursue relationships with folks you perceive to be, again, and it's perception, but you perceive to be radically different than who you are, whether it's race, whether it's vocation, whether it's religion, whatever it is, find people, find a person who you perceive to be different than you and intentionally build a relationship with that person. And you'll find your life enriched. I think if more folks did that, it would be quite remarkable in terms of our culture. It's not comfortable. You're not always going to agree. You're not asking to agree on everything. It's not like level the playing field. Now we all agree and kumbaya, woo you know, somewhere over the rainbow and we're all singing it. Like, you know, that utopia will not happen. That's not what we're looking for, right? I mean, we love the diversity. But um, but you'll understand folks a lot, a lot differently and you won't be absorbed and lost in the noise of social media and you won't succumb to the quicksand of short sound bites of popular media, right? And so those then they have their role too, both do, social media and popular and media. So, but they inform some of our thinking. But, they have a role, but yeah. So I love that idea. Yeah, step outside your comfort zone and live. You know, Deb and I. It's funny. People think. You know, people ask us like, we have eight kids, and they're like, man, you must live in a big house. And we've never lived anything bigger than a three bedroom house. And I look at what we live in. I think it's huge. And so does Debbie. And our kids don't know anything. Our kids are like, you know, it's like, okay, it's like compared to people that are coming out of refugee camps. Like we we are kings and queens. Like, are you crazy? Like this is this is a palace, right? And so. I mean, Dad and I had two cardboard boxes and a mattress, and we lived in a trailer. 
I had two metal trucks, and we used to run them into each other. We had some cowboys and Indians that we'd shoot down at rubber bands. I didn't know I was. I didn't know we were poor. I didn't know we were poor. We had a black and white TV that had snow on it. We'd watch Buck Rogers, Wonder Woman, Incredible Hawk, and the Dukes of Hazard. You know, and it's like, <laughs> but Dad, it was me and Dad. Dad and I had time together. Like, you know, it was like that was a home, right? And so. I think we've lost some of that, some of that, uh, the beauty of the simplicity of, of life, right? And so I'm hoping that we'll see a rebound. I'm hoping, and maybe there, maybe we never have had it, I don't know. But, I mean, it's a constant fight in, in our individual lives, right, to look for ways to enjoy the simple things. But, but that requires us, I think, to step outside of our comfort zones and step into the pain and the suffering of this world and let it be a part of who we are so that we can share the burden together and not try to run from it, but let's let's work together and absorbing it, I think. I don't know. Definitely. I think that's a great place to end off there. So uh, thanks again, John, for being on the show. Yeah, really appreciate having you, you on. Thank you having me. Yeah, appreciate and, it. And um, that was John Rush, Conquerors, uh, currently running for District 17 House of Representatives here in Ohio. And if you want to know, learn more about John, we'll have all his links down in the show notes. And if you like this episode, like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, check us out on all our social media pages. Uh, we really appreciate all your support, guys. We want to thank our sponsors over at AWH. Uh, if you guys want to learn more about them, they are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. And with over 4,500 applications and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, uh, they're focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. To find out more about AWH, Check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.